0: All right, so we've been talking about in our time together the book of Ephesians. And we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to wrap up Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 as we talked about sex, sex dating, marriage, relationships, that sort of thing. So this week we're back into chapter 2 and we're going to finish it. Remember, we're calling the series Walking Is Called. And the reason we're calling it that is, is because we're trying to look at this simple question What is a Christian? Now, if you've grown up for a while being a Christian, you probably think that you know what a Christian is, and I'm here to say you might, but Paul is probably going to tell you something that you don't know. You're going to learn something. And then if you're not a Christian, which is fine, I really am glad you're here, I want you to know what it is a Christian ought to be, so if you're ticked and mad at people who call themselves Christians, you can at least be ticked and mad at people <laughs> trying to, like, you see what I'm saying? Like, you need the standard to be able to see by which to adjudicate things. And that's what we're trying to look at as well. So that's what we're looking at. Walking is called. What does it look like to be, to walk as a Christian in the same way that we're called? So that's where we're at. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. I'll uh, go ahead and read from Verse 11. Amen. This is God's Word. Will you pray with me as we go to Him to uh, learn? Lord, thank You for the fact that You have not um, been silent, that You have spoken in Your Word, that it's passed on through the ages, that You have been faithful to us in it. Lord, tonight, perhaps there's men and women like me tonight whose hearts are cold and need to be warmed. And so I pray tonight that You would do that because You're good and You're kind, not because of anything that we've done, but that You would stir us, Lord, and that You would get at our hearts so that we might see who Jesus is and see how beautiful He is and how wonderful He is and how real He is pray that you would do that, Lord. For those here tonight who aren't sure what to make of you, I pray that you would give them the grace to be able to listen to me. (laughs) That they would hear something about you, some picture of you, Lord. Um, I ask this all in your name. Amen. So when I was in the seventh grade, one of the... Well, I'm going to share a story with you. Uh, I was... It was probably mid-winter and the workouts had begun. I was getting up early, get my mom to take me to school and it was the annual rhythm at Grassland Middle School in Franklin, Tennessee, go Generals, that um, that you were trying out for the baseball team. And growing up, I loved baseball. It was my favorite sport. And I thought for sure I was going to replace all the bad history from the Boston Red Sox and finally give them a first baseman who could field a baseball. If you know what I'm talking about, you're with me. I played first base anyways. Being a baseball player was what I wanted to do with my life. So the tryouts were going. I'm running, doing our sprints throwing the baseball, you know, we're throwing balls in from the outfield, hitting bat and practice the whole nine yards, and I'm beginning to notice something. Now, I am the youngest person in my grade. I was 17 when I started college. I was, you know, I was just always the youngest. And I began to notice something at this tryout, that other dudes' balls are flying off the bat a lot farther than mine were. And as I'm running wind sprints, Like, there's tons of dudes ahead of me. And I'm going, oh, crap. I mean, the odds are stacked against me. And finally, the day came. You know where this is going. I got the little red slip in my locker. Not really, but that's what it was. And Coach Kaler, who I love to this day, did not let me on the team. Cut from the baseball team my seventh grade year. Crushed me tears from seventh grade. You know, 13 years old, whatever. Bottom line, it was in that moment that I felt like a true outsider. Because all the guys that I had grown up playing baseball with in rec ball were now going on and they were in this special club. They got to play baseball for Grassland Middle and I was stuck playing rec ball. And they were going to get to travel to play Brentwood Middle School and all the other middle schools and I was left out. I was an outsider, I want to ask you, where have you known exactly what I felt that day in seventh grade? What program have you applied for at TCU and not been in? What play did you try out for and you gave it your all but you did not get the part? What fraternity or sorority were you dying to be a part of? And rush went on, and you were seemingly left in its wake. An outsider. Not in. Not in whatsoever. The Apostle Paul in this letter is telling us the exact same thing that all of us in some sense are what C.S. Lewis writes about. I'm going to read you a quote of his. He writes, but we pine. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers. The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. What is Lewis saying? He's saying that each one of us, deep down, deep down, feels like an outsider in the cosmic sense. At some point in your life or my life, we have felt shut out from the very heart of God. And the reason for that Paul says, is because that we have hearts that are so bent in on ourselves that we have literally cut ourselves off from the very thing that is meant to give us life and blessing and flourishing. That cutting off is what the Bible refers to as sin, and the result of that is separation. We are, as Paul would say, Strangers and aliens. Let me put it this way. If you are in Christ today, that is actually what you were. And Paul is saying you need to remember that. But because of that's what you were, it means that that's not what you are anymore. In fact, you have been, ready, reconciled to God. That comes straight from our text. And because you have been reconciled to God, Paul says there are three new things about you. First of all, what is the first thing that Paul is going to say that is new about you? First, you have a new position. Secondly, that you are part of a new humanity. And thirdly, that you are part of a new dwelling. I'm going to look at each one of those in series. But I first need to describe for you what is meant by the word reconciliation. Because you need to know what I'm talking about. To be reconciled in the biblical sense is to say there was a relationship. And the relationship in some way, shape, form, or fashion got marred. Things went bad. They went awry. And then to reestablish and to restore that relationship is what is called reconciliation. It's always an interpersonal term. Does that make sense? So I don't want you to think about your checkbook. Or does anybody even balance a checkbook anymore? No, I don't either. I just had to say it because that was the only thing I could think of. The point is that when you balance a checkbook, that's called reconciling a checkbook. Your bank statement says one thing. Your checking account says another. You've got to find the problem and reconcile them. Don't think of that. Think about the guy that dumped you. And now y'all are just at odds. For that relationship to be restored in some reasonable way is what the Bible is talking about, reconciliation. And it's with respect to both men, like humans, and then from man to God. And that's what Paul's talking about. So what do I mean by you have a new position? Look with me at verses 11 through 13. Paul is saying essentially that there is a group of people, this group called the uncircumcised, that are literally have been outsiders that we've been talking about. Now what does he mean when he talks about the uncircumcised? He's talking about, this is a very Jewish text. If you are not from a Jewish background, if you're not Jewish yourself, this needs some explaining. There were two groups of people if you were Jewish. There were your fellow Jews called Israel and then there were the Gentiles, everybody else. So if you were from Gaul, or you were from China, or if you were Greek, or if you were Roman, you were known as a Gentile. So it's Jews and then everybody else. And what he's saying is, is that at one point in time, everybody else that was not Jewish was an outsider. Because God came first to the Jews and said, this is the people through whom I'm going to bless the world. So, You all are insiders, and from you, you're supposed to go out and bless the world. That is not a New Testament thing. That is deeply Old Testament. You can look in Genesis 12 to see it. God goes to Abraham, and he says, through you, Abraham, you're going to bless the world. It's a very Old Testament thing. And Paul is saying, at one time, if you were not Jewish, that means that means you and me, I'm not, I am like Middle Tennessean. That's as far back as my lineage goes. I might be German or British or something, but I am distinctively not Jewish. And somehow to this day I know Christ. Do you know Christ? Then somehow you got in. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's trying to say. You were an outsider once. Now, what does he mean by being brought near? Hang with me. You have to think about the Jewish temple system because that is deeply ingrained in Paul's thought. In the old temple system, if you would have gone to the physical land of Israel that day, there would have been a temple. And in the middle of that temple would have been an altar. And behind that altar, there would have been the Holy of Holies where God's manifest presence literally was. Like He dwelt. That's where He made Himself known. In the middle of that temple. And then from going on the temple, there were successive rings where people some people could go and some people couldn't go. And there was literally, the most outside court was called, guess what? The court of the Gentiles. And there was literally an inscription that says, if you cross this barrier, you do so at your own peril because you cannot go there. And what Paul is saying is that Every single one of you and me, if we were alive then and you weren't Jewish, we're stuck in the outside court. We could not get to the very presence of God. And he's saying, Now, that wall is shattered and your position has been moved from an outsider to an insider. What does this mean? First of all, I want it to, it, you need to know that this thing that happens to you is literally passive. Do you see it there that you have been brought near? I'm thinking of a party that my wife and I went to a couple weeks ago. We have a friend named Emily. She had a birth birthday party and uh her Tim husband, her husband Tim. Yeah, that's what you know, how girls how you take a Tim. Um Tim will laugh if he hears this. That's what's good. Uh He rented a party bus for her. So it was like eight or ten, you know, extremely white people dancing to like 90s music on the way. Y'all would have loved it. I think I have some video if you want to see it. But the point is, is that that bus came and got us and brought us to the restaurant. We did not drive there. We did nothing to get there except get on the bus. We sat our bottoms in the seat and we trusted the driver to take us to the restaurant. And then Laura and I had to leave because she's preggers. I'm going to tell you, sweetie, you busted the night up. We were going to go dancing, have a big old time. Anyways, just playing. I love you. Um, What's my point? I want you to know that when you got brought from the outside in, you did nothing for it. And most of you that some in some way, shape, or fashion think that that's the way that you get to God. That if I can just work hard enough, if I can do the right stuff, if I can pray the right things or enough times or read my Bible enough, then God will be happy with me and then He'll have to bless me. I was talking to one of the freshmen in our freshman Bible study. And I was like, this is what we talked about on Monday. And it was money. It was like For me to do that is actually very insulting of God's grace. Because what it says is is that all that free stuff, eh, I don't want it to be free. I want to pay for it. And watch how good I can be. And then you'll have to give me some of that. And what Paul is saying is, you have to stop. Rest. Trust in Jesus. Jesus. He is the one that brings you out and puts you in. You have a new position. You are no longer an outsider. Let me, put a, let me put a further point on it. You do not have to do anything. If you are a Christian today, you cannot be any closer to God than you are right now. Does that make sense? How many times, if you're a Christian, have you said, I just don't feel that close to God? I'm just not that close to God right now. You need to tell yourself hogwash, balderdash, that's ridiculous. You need to look yourself in the face and say, Listen up, self. Jesus has died for you, you are near and intimate to him. He takes up residence within you. You cannot be any closer to Him than you are right now. Now, you may not feel like you're close to Him, and that's a different thing, but the only way that you're ever going to feel closer to Him is when you start believing that in reality God looks at you and says, mine, you are close to Me. You cannot get any closer to Jesus than you are right now. And that is good news for every single one of us. New position. Secondly, You are part of a new humanity. What in the world do I mean by a new humanity? Look at this at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both. There it is. Us. What in the world? Hang with me. And has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. He goes on and says in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God. So what, what is going on? I thought he was talking about the Gentiles. Now he's talking about both and us. That seems to be two people groups. And you're exactly right, if that's what you're thinking. Because what he is saying is, is that the greatest barrier to an ancient Jew and Gentile has just been shut down. Let me put it like this. The distinction between Jew and Gentile was far more severe and fierce than anything the United States South saw pre-Civil War and beyond through the Civil Rights Movement. Utter hatred. Utter disdain between the classes. Utter disdain. And what Paul is saying is, is that Jesus literally took the thing that divided them and shattered it. Well, that begs the question, what was the thing? Here it is. Do you see it there? He says it. It's the law of commandments and ordinances. These Jewish folks would have had a series of beliefs, i.e. the Old Testament, that they would have said, you want to be with us? You want to roll with us? Take it and obey it. If you want to be in... You better keep this to the letter. And if you don't, you're an outsider to me. And I've got nothing to do with you. You're other. And what Paul is saying is Jesus comes and takes this. He takes all the commands, he takes the ceremonial law, and he literally pulverizes it. He abolishes it. He fulfills it. It's what Jesus himself says. Such that there is no more enmity between that which defines you and the other. And what keeps that person separate from God. So here's what happens. God is shattering distinctions left and right. And He makes a totally new person. A totally new, literally, humanity is what I'm talking about. Here's what this means for you. If you are a Christian today, you need to know, I am Ryan, I am a white male from Tennessee. The the most defining thing about me is that I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian first, an Anderson second. I'm a Christian first, I am an Anglo second. I'm a Christian first, I'm a male second. And that is what is true for you. What is he saying? He's saying that the defining mark in your life is that you are in Christ. And that means that for others that share that same label, that you and him or you and her have more in common than your own blood. Do you see that? What he is saying is that I have more in common with an 80-year-old A Japanese lady from the hill country of Japan who knows and loves Jesus than I do with the guys I grew up with on the street who don't. Than the people in my own family who don't know Christ. That that is my defining mark. Do you see what this does? It's going to get dirty. Because it means all the things that you like to identify yourself with just got pulverized. That means the person that's not in a fraternity or sorority or that is, that's in Jesus, you're tighter with them than you actually think. And that actually all those folks that if you're in a fraternity or sorority that you're super tight with, you're not. Not in God's eyes. I mean, you can love them and stuff, but I'm saying... If you're a Christian, your defining mark is that you're a Christian, and that is your new identity. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is saying has happened because he has reconciled you. He has brought you together with the people that you hate. <laughs> that's what happens. That's what Christianity is beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. You won't find that anywhere else. Lastly, what in the world do I mean by a new dwelling? You have to know that what is going on in this particular text is that we are talking about strong temple language. The temple, the temple, the temple. Look with it right there, verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What was the temple? The temple was, in the Old Testament, the place that God met with His people. You have to, have to, have to, have to, have to understand that. If you were a good Jew, you knew you went to temple because that's the place where God was and that was the place He was only going to be. And if you wanted to meet with Him and know Him and experience Him, you had to go there. And before there was a temple, there was this thing called the tabernacle. But then King Solomon came along in about 1000 B.C. and said, I'm going to build a temple. And from there it happened. And then what happened in Ezekiel's day is that the thing got busted. The dirty Babylonians came in and ransacked the thing, took everything in it back to their land and ransacked it. And the people started going back in about 415 B.C. to rebuild it. it. And it remained and remained and it finally that's why you have this whole stuff over there called the Temple Mount. We can go into that later, but here's what Paul is saying that all of that has been demolished, and that now you and me are the temple. Y'all, I don't, I was struggling to find words to know how to say this. But I want you to know that God has not restrained His very presence to anywhere. But He has given it and He is in the midst of His people. And do you know in the book of Revelation 21, I'm just going to turn there real quick and read to you what the writer John is saying. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So, End of the Christian story. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Listen, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Boom. For all of eternity... There is no temple. Why? Because there is no reason for there to be any sort of mediation anymore. The whole reason there was a temple in the first place is because of that incurved heart that you and me have called sin. So God has to locate Himself in a place where there has to be continual payment for that sin. And God is saying "The, the day is coming where no more and forever will you be with God face to face. When you get a hold of that, your everything just pales in comparison. Because it, it means like this is the most dominant story in your life. I gotta brag on you, Carter. At Freshman Bible Study the other night, we were talking about this very thing. And he pulls a double rainbow on me. He's sitting there as we're talking about it. And he goes, it's just so beautiful. But he's right. And that's exactly, that's exactly what Paul wants you to feel. The unmediated full, real presence of God for all eternity. He has wiped every tear from your eye. The thing that you most long for, the thing that you feel the most stranger-like because is done away with. Your unconsolable secret is done away with. Paul is saying, And that has started in part now and the day is coming when you will know it in full if you're in Jesus. I mean, I got chills talking about it. And yes, I'm fired up. Because I want you to see that that's the sort of stuff that's worthy of getting fired up for. I'm going to dock this ship, but I need to tell you one more thing. When I was in seminary, I had a friend of mine. He's still very close to me. His name was Stephen. His name is Stephen. He's still alive. Um, he asked me to go to the movies one night. And because I am the worst at this, keeping all of my options open, how many of y'all do this, right? Some ask you to do something. Oh, yeah, I need to check on that. Yeah, I'm letting you know a little bit about myself. When really what you mean is I want to check and see what else is out there, what's better, yeah, okay, join the club, all right? I did that to my friend Stephen. Yeah, I'm going to go, oh, I can't go to the movies tonight because I think I got, and then it was like, boom, God just, I mean, like, put me on the ground on my butt and was like, like, really, Ryan? Really? You're going to do that to him? Call him up. Stephen, man, I'm so, I'm so sorry, dude. I'm a hack. Listen, I told you I could go. I couldn't go because I was waiting to see if other plans came open. Will you just, will you please forgive me? I'm really, really sorry. Yeah, man. No worries. totally get it. It's it's totally cool. The reason that reconciliation was possible between he and me or I, I can't remember, is because he was willing to bear the brunt of the pain that came on the relationship. He did not make me pay. He absorbed that. And we have talked about for 27 minutes, that reconciliation has happened. But I want you to know why it has happened. And it has happened because Jesus has looked at every single one of you. When you have been in opposition, hatred to Him giving him the middle finger, and he has said, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. And you know what the payment was? It was his very life. It is by Jesus' death that you are brought near. He was made a stranger on the cross so that you could become a family member. He was made far out Far from the Father's presence. Look at His words. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Actually, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and me could be made close. Look, here's the deal, y'all. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian tonight, you need to put to rest that God is out to get you. And that He doesn't like you. Do you know he's completely satisfied with you? I don't care what your story is. I don't care. I don't care. If you're in Jesus, this is what's true about you. Yeah, you're still gonna mess up, still gonna sin, you're still gonna need to say you're sorry, all that. But Jesus loves you. He delights in you. You have been reconciled to him. That's the good news. Let's pray. God, thank You for this truth tonight. We ask that You would push these things further into our hearts so that we might know and love You and cherish You more. Thank You for what You have done in Jesus. Thank You, O Lord. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.